Hello, and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill, and I'm here with Steve. Happy 4th of July, Steve. Oh, happy 4th of July, Bill. <laughs> what we're gonna do today, and over the course of many future episodes, is give you the experience of what it's like to be in the woods, in the field, and on the trail. Each month, we pick a natural history topic, research the science, and then take you out to a natural spot to share with you everything that we've learned. And Steve, where are we today? Oh, give me an easy one. <laughs> the Eternal Flame Falls. Yeah, so we are in Chestnut Ridge Park. We've recorded another episode at this particular site that was the Subnivian layer. Yeah, yeah. and that episode it was raining in the oh, middle of right. winter, and this episode it's so hot. <laughs> We're luckily in a nice shaded canopy right now. Hot as balls, can I say that? <laughs> I think I don't have to bleep that one. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we are in a little patch of hemlock right now. And for those who didn't listen to that other episode, many portions of the park are maintained as what you think of, I don't know, what I think of as a county park with shelters and playgrounds, but they do have a good amount of second growth woods here. As I said, we're a little hemlock stand now. And this particular section of Chestnut Ridge, you mentioned it's called the Eternal Flame. Yep because there's a trail that we're on right now that goes down into uh, a shale bottom creek into a gorge. And then you hike up the creek and you reach a small grotto at the base of a waterfall and there's actually a natural gas leak and there's a flame there, right? Did you bring a lighter? I did not bring a lighter. <laughs> and, but And hold on, I wanna ask you, have you ever lit any of the other flames other than the main flame right at the waterfall. I think so, the ones that kind of come out of the side? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, because I've never done it. Oh, no. I've I only don't. ever uh, had to relight the main flame. Well, there's so many people here today. Yeah. <laughs> Being the 4th of July, right. this probably was not the best choice for a site. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm betting people will, will have lit the flame. But yeah. I was doing a little bit of reading while I was waiting for you in the car today. And the passage I read said it may be the only instance of a natural gas leak behind a waterfall in the world. I don't know that to me <laughs> seemed hard to, hard to disprove or prove. But yeah, 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 right. Yeah. We're not here today, though, to look at the eternal flame, although we might make it down there, right? Yeah. This will be an episode where we can be 100% sure that we are not going to find our target species. So, spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> right? Nothing's 100%, all right? <laughs> all right, let's say what it is. Yeah, today's topic is foxfire fungus. Yeah. <laughs> so you did it again, didn't you? I, our original plan was to do foxfire fungus. Correct. But then I realized that, or, or I think I thought we had both come to the conclusion that foxfire was a really difficult thing to talk about just on its own because there's very little research on it. There's a few species called foxfire. Right. So I thought we were just doing bioluminescent fungi in general. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, that's what I covered because okay. that term foxfire, at least in my research, it seems to indicate any fungus that has bioluminescence. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So I guess we did research the same stuff yeah. then. I, I, I was specifically thinking about a specific group that's, that's I think, more commonly referred to as foxfire. Okay, but. I have a, a good intro. Yeah. Did you come across in your research how foxfire is related to submarines? No, go for it. That seems really interesting. Yeah, it was super cool. I came across this reference to one of the first submarines that was ever designed for military use. Mm -hmm. So this actually goes all the way back to the Revolutionary War. George Washington reviewed the plans and okayed funding 
for the construction of a vessel called the Turtle. And it was designed to be used underwater to attach ex explosives to the hulls of British ships that were blockading uh, North American ports. Mm -hmm. And now remember, this was 1776. <laughs> right. So no electricity, right? Yeah. They used foxfire on the dials of the instruments. Whoa. So that would provide illumination when you're underwater. And obviously it's dark. They didn't have electricity. So right. the only problem with it was they were testing it in November. Uh -huh. So when temperatures dropped, Foxfire did not glow. Oh, yeah. There's a range there yeah. that they like. Yeah. <laughs> but look up the turtle, submersible, submarine. It's a really cool and interesting story. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. It sounds like something out of like avatar or some right. weird fantasy novel or something no it's true yeah <laughs> but we don't know what happened to the turtle its transport vessel was sunk and as far as we know it was never recovered so well i wanted to start with kind of like a personal anecdote actually yeah go for it yeah so um bill have you come across foxfire at night hiking i never have okay so then i have two very brief anecdotes then okay. so so maybe 10 years ago now a few of my friends and i were doing a night hike at a place called the iroquois national wildlife refuge uh, and we did this type of thing a lot we brought headlamps but we rarely used them we would just go on these night hikes and we were hiking a trail called swallow hollow we kind of went off trail into this small evergreen plantation and after a few minutes of just exploring around one of us noticed a dim green blue glow coming out of one of the tops of a uh, decaying stump have i told you about this right yeah you did. and uh it's kind of hard to describe but the decaying pieces of wood were completely glowing they looked like like if you have a glow-in-the-dark frisbee or something you know how those glow yeah. it was kind of like that so it was bright. Uh, but they were chunks of wood oh yeah i mean Right, but probably, let's say if you had your lights on, it would take a little while for your eyes to adjust. Okay. Um, and, and I don't remember which one of my friends either took a piece home or came back the next day, but it wasn't glowing when they came back. So we must have caught it right at the end of its oh, bioluminescent okay. cycle, I guess. But that's not to say that the fungus isn't long-lasting, because I've heard stories about people mailing glowing wood to family, friends, and colleagues. Uh, so they definitely seem hardy, but uh, like I said, we were probably just like at the end of that period of, uh, of its glowing. And I also brought this up earlier, but we saw Foxfire at the Allegheny Nature Pilgrimage. I guess Bill must have gone back to the cabin at this point, but our friend Garrett, who we'd love to have on a future podcast, a future fungi episode, uh, he found some bioluminescent fungus at the base of a tree right near where we were attracting moths. And because we were just staring at bright lights projected onto white sheets, it actually did take a while for our eyes to adjust. But there was definitely a faint glow, just little blotches of glow right at the base of this one tree. We weren't looking at the tree in the daylight, so I don't remember the tree being obviously dying or decaying, but it was still, you know, it was still there. It was still right there on the, the base of the tree. Awesome. Yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. All right, well, I feel like we need to, to back up a little bit and mm -hmm. define some of our terms, give people a little bit of background if they're not familiar with this. Yeah. First, bioluminescence, that's living organisms that are producing and emitting light. Yeah. Right? And think of a firefly. They're probably the best understood bioluminescent organism. Mm -hmm. But today we're talking about probably the least understood group of bioluminescent organisms. And so foxfire is that blue-green bioluminescence that you mentioned that some species of fungi present on decaying wood. Yeah. And it's not the wood that's glowing. It's the fungi that are present in the wood. Yeah. Oop. You hear that? Mm-hmm. It's a cuckoo. cuckoo. Yeah. yeah. 
I don't remember if it's a black build or yellow build. Yeah, regardless, that's not a common one for me. Yeah. I, I don't really hear them all that much. Nice. Right, that's I'm gonna, cool. I'm going to look it up and then I can. All right, I just looked it up. It is a black billed cuckoo. Yeah, okay. <laughs> all right. Good sighting. Well, what would you call that? Good hearing? Yeah, <laughs> it counts. <laughs> all right, as you mentioned, Foxfire can be dim, but I even came across in some cases that it's bright enough to read by and that historically people have sometimes used it to light their homes or Whoa. to use it as makeshift torches. Hmm. I, it, I've heard the torches, but okay. yeah. And if you've ever heard of stories about will-o'-the-wisps, uh, sometimes that was attributed to foxfire glowing off in the woods. It's also sometimes called fairy fire. And did you come across the oldest recorded documentation? Was it Aristotle? Aristotle. Yeah. So 382 BC, and his notes refer to it, and he called it a cold fire, yeah. a light that was cold to the touch. And then uh, also Pliny the Elder, he mentioned glowing wood and olive groves. I actually have a quote from Pliny. Oh. This is actually from his Historia Naturalis on a bioluminescent white mushroom in France. But I'm going to take some liberties with some of the weird outdated words so it's easier <laughs> to understand. As for the tree fungus, it groweth in France, <laughs> principally upon the trees that bear mast in a matter of white mushroom, of a sweet flavor, very effectual in medicine, and used in many antidotes and sovereign confections. It groweth upon the head and tops of trees, it shineth in the night, and by the light that is given in the dark, men know where and how to gather. Ah, yeah. Very cool. And I think it's safe to maybe skip the next 1800 years or so because arguably nothing important happens between the first and 19th centuries. <laughs> and at this point, taxonomists still grouped fungi and plants together because they do have superficially similar habits. Right. But, you know, it wouldn't be too long until they start dividing those guys up. Right. <laughs> and actually, it turns out that fungi are a little bit more closely related to animals than yeah, they right. are plants. Yeah. They're more like us. Yeah. So it wasn't until 1823 that the cause of the light was discovered. People noticed in mines the foxfire glow coming from support beams. And then they realized through examining it that it was coming from the fungal growth that was present in those beams. But you just mentioned that Pliny connected the light to the fungus. Yeah, but he was cheating because it was actually the mushroom that was glowing. It wasn't the mycelium in the wood okay. that was making the wood glow. And we should make the distinction that it seems most often it's the strands of the fungus, the mycelium, like mm -hmm. you just said, spreading over the rotten wood that creates the foxfire glow. All right, so this is a good time to stop because I think it's a really good idea because we've never covered mushrooms before yeah. to just get into some of the terminology because we, we already dropped things like mycelium right and there's probably a lot of people that don't really know what's what that is what that's all about now before you do that yep. though, i want to say Duh. i got a oh speaking of bioluminescence you got a firefly right on you yeah <laughs> nice he's a little guy what species yeah <laughs> <laughs> no clue all right so with some species, it is the mushroom cap itself that glows. And the second thing I wanted to say was in our research, we did not find a whole lot of material on foxfire. It's the least understood of any of the bioluminescent groups. Oh yeah. So we may be getting stuff wrong in this episode. And if people out there notice something that we've gotten wrong, we want you to let us know. We yeah. were I was kind of excited when you said that you did a search of 
podcast episodes out there Mm -hmm. and you couldn't find any references to Foxfire, right? Yes. Sometimes before we do an episode, I like to see just what maybe if anyone else has put anything out there like us. Yeah. And to the best of my ability to search, there is no other podcast that's covered this topic. Yeah. (laughs) So. All right. We're breaking new ground here. (laughs) All right. So why don't we start walking and you can start talking about the basics of fungi. Yeah, and I'm really gonna be super, super basic here, but I I think it'll help out in the long run. First of all, I think it's important to bring up that people think of the mushroom as being the fungus. The cap. Yeah, the cap, and that's not exactly right. And I'm a little hesitant to do this because mushrooms, you know, as we just said, they're more closely related to animals than plants, but the mushroom is a little bit more like the apple than it is like the tree. Right. So if the mushroom is the apple and or the fruit of the fungi, what is the tree? And that's something that we mentioned called mycelium. It's a network of fine thread-like structures in the soil or some other substrate. Right, so depending on the species at certain times of year, that network of mycelium, which is really the fungus, it's going to send up a fruiting body, that cap. Yeah, it's- To reproduce. A lot of people think of the mycelium kind of like the roots of a tree, but it's like the main body. It's like (laughs) of the that is the tree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, Uh, and a good way to think of it is, if you find a mushroom cap on the forest floor and you break that cap off, you know, from where it attaches to the ground, it's just like picking an apple. Yeah. The rest of the plant remains when you pluck an apple, and when you pluck that mushroom cap that fungus is still there under the soil. Yeah, so all you frugivores can feel good about (laughs) picking mushrooms. This kind of gets a little bit more in depth and not as important to remember, but taxonomically, mushrooms seem like they're in a constant flux, but as of right now, or at least pretty recently anyway, mushrooms have been proposed to be split into seven major divisions and of which only two, the Ascomycota or sac fungi, and Basidiomycota make up the subkingdom Dicaria, also known as the higher fungi, and this is where you'll find all of the bioluminescent fungi. Right. And this is the most species-rich and familiar group. Uh, This subkingdom includes all mushrooms, most food spoilage molds, most plant uh, pathogenic fungi, and the most important category of fungi, the beer, wine, and bread yeasts. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And forgive me if I'm mistaken, and I'm pretty positive I am, but I think all the bioluminescent fungi, they're not just higher fungi in the subkingdom Dicaria, but I believe they're all also Basidiomycetes. So they're all in that one division, Basidiomycata. And there was just one exception that I found. It was in another order. Oh, okay. Yeah, but that was it. And all known bioluminescent fungi, they are mushroom forming white spored agarics. And agarics, that's just a type of gill mushroom. Right. Yeah. And if you're not familiar with Basidiomycetes, this group includes puffballs, stinkhorns, bracket fungi, other polypores, the jelly, uh, boletes, chanterelles, earth stars. Uh, and smuts, bunts, rusts, like <laughs> mushrooms have the craziest names. <laughs> and, and there's also some type of yeasts in this group, but the true yeasts are actually sac fungi, the other division that makes up the rest of the higher fungi. But if you didn't catch all of that, it's not super important. The takeaway is that all or most yeah. <laughs> uh, of the species of bioluminescent fungi are limited to one major division of mushrooms, 
the Basidio micata. And did you come across how many actual species? Surprisingly few. I, right. I The 2008 paper that I heavily relied on had it at 64, but as of 2015 or so, it was at least at 83 species okay. worldwide. But we should plan on that number slowly rising. rising. Yeah. And part of that, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but part of that is because there are many mushrooms that we're discovering now that the luminescence is not visible to the human eye. It's just at a wavelength that we don't see. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yep. Wow. So when we talk about bioluminescence, it's not important enough that we can see it. It's important enough that anything that can see can see it because <laughs> we don't want to be in a human centric mindset because right. we're going to miss a lot of interesting stuff if we don't think about that. Right. Yeah. There's a lot we do miss. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I asked you about how many species there are because I wanted to give people the sense that this is a pretty rare phenomenon. Mm -hmm. The largest number I found was a reference to about 80 species. So 83 doesn't make sense. Yeah. But out of the 100,000 described fungal species, right. there's only about 80 that have this behavior. And I like that in previous episodes, our benchmark has always been gymnosperms, which are such a tiny, tiny, tiny group of plants. They make up 1,080 species. These guys are way smaller of a group than that. But who knows? Maybe there's way more. I, but but um, I'm pretty sure that we're not going to discover that there's maybe, more bioluminescent fungi than there are gymnosperms. Maybe they're all bioluminescent. <laughs> <laughs> we just haven't noticed it yet. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so I don't know if, um, if you happen to watch it, but when I started researching this episode, I'd looked up just general videos. Yeah. And there was a great one with the wonderful, awesome David Attenborough. Okay, yeah. Who was talking about bioluminescent fungi. And he said that there's bioluminescence happening under your feet probably right now. Right. Because many of the these bioluminescent fungi, we don't see it because it's happening underground. Yeah, because it's often, and again, we'll touch on this a little bit later, the mycelium. Right. So it's very rare for a mushroom to be bioluminescent and have the mycelium not be bioluminescent. There are a few cases, but for the most part, it's either just the mycelium or the mycelium and the mushroom or some part of the mushroom. But when you say mushroom, you're talking about the fruiting body the fr that's sticking out of the soil. Yes, yeah. yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I kind of cut off uh, the the history a little bit. We uh, we backtracked a little bit. So yeah. you were already into the 1800s, yep. I believe. And you're about to talk about the discovery by the Austrian chemist, Johann Heller, one no. of the founders of clinical chemistry. I he's, was not. <laughs> he's the one that first associated the glowing to the fungi and not the plant. He's a, he's a relatively famous guy. Um, relatively. <laughs> relatively famous guy. And not many years later, uh, German botanist and plant physiologist William Pfeiffer was the first to apply the terms luciferin and luciferase to bioluminescent fungi. And we're going to put a pin in that because when we talk about the actual chemical reaction that's happening, we'll talk about those terms again. But it took a long time till right around the year 1900 or so for these terms to be applied to fungi. And it wasn't until very recently, I'm thinking within the past 10 or 20 years, that we figured out exactly what the chemical reaction is, what those chemicals are doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But we're still not 100% clear on it. 
Right. There's definitely a bit of mystery still. Yeah. Um, and I think yeah. part of that is there's not a lot of people researching it, so, at least in fungus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. yeah. So the animals have been well understood and so highly studied, but the fungi have been kind of pushed to the side a little bit. Yeah. And I think- Because they're gross, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think part of it is that we don't live on the scale that a lot of fungi live. Like we're, we're bothered by insects all the time. And we see, you know, at night, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing fireflies fly around and it's so interesting, but fungi a little bit more cryptic. Right? So, yeah. all right. So I want to jump to 1957. Uh, that's when Edmund Harvey wrote A History of Luminescence from the Earliest Times until 1900. This is a nearly 200-page book that covered what was known about the physics, chemistry, and biology of everything that glows in the dark. So I'd love to read this for its historical value, but it's so long. So instead, I checked out a 13-page 2008 publication summarizing the last 30 years of scientific research specifically about bioluminescent mushrooms. All right, and you'll put, so, you'll put that into the notes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, mycology is so young and really like we're so out of our depth with it <laughs> in terms of our specialties that I think things like summary papers are really the best tool <laughs> maybe for us moving forward. But yeah. uh I don't know. It's it's so hard to 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 go into a field that's so complex when you don't have any formal uh, training. Training in yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. No, I quickly felt out of my depth looking through some of these papers. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. <laughs> it's like reading a genetics paper, but it's still on the species level. But it just, uh, uh, it got even me. some of the abstracts. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So, do you want to maybe jump into the lineages or species, maybe? Well, first, I want to ask: Do you know where the name foxfire comes from? No, yeah, let's go into that. All right, so the fox part has nothing to do with the animal fox, at least here in the oh, West. Oh, I kind of thought they looked like foxes. What did? <laughs> the mycelium? <laughs> no, no, no. So it's believed to be derived from the old French word foals, and I don't know if I'm saying that right, but that means false. Oh, okay. So foxfire, false fire. But there is an association in Japan between these fungi and foxes because according to some stories in Japanese folklore when they would see foxfire glowing off in the woods they believed it was the lanterns that foxes were using in their wedding processions oh okay yeah. okay yeah. so that's where we believe the name comes from all right so now I think it would be a good time to get into some of the lineages so uh, recent multi-gene molecular sequence data sets suggest that at least three independent origins of bioluminescence in fungi. But you just told me uh, that it's four. Right. <laughs> it's, so at least three's not wrong, but we can be more accurate as it turns out. It's at least three. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, and those groups are the Omphalotus, the... You the, can do it, Steve, come on. <laughs> the Armillaria, and the Mycenoid lineages. And even though this isn't perfectly right, the 2008 paper that I used claimed that all known bioluminescent fungi are basidiomycetes and represent white spored eugerics, which Bill had already said, and that they are mushroom forming, saprophytic, or rarely plant pathogenic species. There are some, but it is rare that it, it's going to be a pathogenic mushroom. So I think we should quickly address the term saprophytic because I just kind of said it without pausing there. <laughs> that just means that they consume decayed organic matter. Right. That's where their livelihood comes from. And I also want to say that these four lineages where bioluminescence appeared 
um, they're not actually just three genera. They're three closely related groups of bioluminescent species within multiple genera. So they're related and they're closely related, but they're not all in the same genus. Okay. So I think to break it down simply though, we could say that all of our bioluminescent fungi that we know of right now, about 80 species, come from four distinct ancestors. Yes. Okay. All right. And uh, maybe we should move a little bit just because we are getting a little bit of traffic here yeah. and then I can start talking about them. All right, so uh, let's start with the Omphalotus. Okay. This group, the last I checked, had 12 species and five genera. And in North America, we have at least two species. These are the Eastern and Western jack-o'-lantern mushrooms. These guys grow in clumps and they can be confused with chanterelles if you know what they look like. So these species are actually some of the species that have luminescent mushrooms and luminescent mycelium as well. All right, so the second lineage is in the genus Amalaria. These guys have at least five species worldwide, and at least four of those species do occur in North America. These species are also known as honey mushrooms and are well-known edible fungi that are either saprophytic or problematic forest tree root pathogens. I have a quote here from a paper. They form creamy white mycelial fans and coarse black rhizomorphs as infection, exploratory, and transport organs. The mycelium, mycelial fans, and rhizomorphs are luminescent, but not the mushrooms. Right, because I, I found reference to the honey fungus because it's the most widely, widely distributed. Mm -hmm. uh, that specific species, Armillaria melia. Okay. But I'm glad you mentioned that the caps don't glow because even though it's the most widely distributed of the bioluminescent fungi, I saw a lot of references with an air of disappointment in that you don't really get to see it as a bioluminescent <laughs> fungi. Yeah, right, yeah. right. And, and the reason I brought this up, that the mycelium, mycelial fans, and rhizomorphs are luminescent and not the mushrooms, is because this is the species most commonly called foxfire. Right. And there have been many in vitro experiments that have shown that it can sustain its bright luminescence for up to 10 weeks. Wow. Which blew my mind because a lot of the other accounts that I was reading was giving these bioluminescence maybe three days or so oh, that they really? can sustain them. Yeah. Oh, a lot I thought of them it was a lot longer than that. A lot of them aren't super long lived, but these can be. This oh. group can be. All right. So one of our North American bioluminescent armorilia, armorilia gallica, made the news for being one of the world's largest organisms. Did you come across no. this guy? You'll know the story as soon as I say it. So I'm just going to quote the paper now because I thought that they kind of put it in a nice way. A single individual in Michigan covered 15 hectares and was estimated oh. to weigh at least 9,700 kilograms, which is over 21,000 pounds, and is said to be 1,500 years old. Oh my God. This discovery stimulated the search for even larger armorilia individuals, and in 2003, researchers in Oregon reported a single individual of armorilia ostiae. Hang I don't on a know sec. if. Say that genus name again. Armillaria? Armillaria. Sorry, okay. I, I said it wrong. Okay. <laughs> Armillaria ostoye. I'm so bad when it's Y A E. I never know how to do it. And this one was covering nine kilometers squared and estimated to be between 2,000 and 8,500 years old. One wonders if the entire forest floor is aglow at night. <laughs> and wow. I just love that they put that yeah. in a serious publication. <laughs> all right, so that's all I have for the 
our malaria. <laughs> I always struggle with that when I want to add extra R's or yeah. something. Um, and now we can move on to the largest and last, or largest and second last group. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to constantly get that wrong. This is the mycenoid lineage. This is the largest and most diverse group. It has at least 47 species and at least six genera. It's unclear if the luminescent trait appeared early on and multiple species lost it over time, or if it appeared multiple times independently within this group. Because it's possible. We, we, uh, we don't have enough evidence to say one way or the other. It usually seems more likely that an ancestor had a trait and then it was lost than that trait separately appearing, but, but at least this paper uh, went out of their way to mention that. This group is nearly all saprophytic. They're white rot decomposers that form small mushrooms with gill or tube spore-bearing surfaces, and few are plant pathogens. In North America, we have at least 12 species from this group. And there's two interesting individuals that I want to point out. There's Pinellus strypticus, and this individual has both luminescent and non-luminescent strains that occur in eastern North America. And then this is one that I was talking about earlier, Mycena hematopus, which this one is one of the ones that emits light at a frequency not visible to the human eye. And actually, most literature does classify it as being in the non-bioluminescent group. Oh, okay. Yeah, and because of this, it seems very likely that many more of the described Mycena species may have bioluminescent properties that are currently undetected. And I think it's here to, to maybe step back and just maybe repeat some of the general patterns of luminescence that we're kind of seeing across these groups. It seems to be the case that only the mycelium or the mycelium and the mushroom emits light, and it's rare for only the mushrooms and not the mycelium to, to emit light. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not always the entire mushroom that glows either. Some species only have luminescent spores, gills, caps, or even the stems that glow. Whoa. That'd be weird. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that primarily the mycelium glows will become a little bit more important when we get into the ecological function of bioluminescence and fungi. But I don't know. I don't want to step on Bill's toes anymore. <laughs> I want to see if he wants to move on to something else before we get to yes. the ecology. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I want to talk about next. Oh, great. I'll yeah. let you jump off then. That was my, what I mean, my question to you is why does this glowing happen? Why does bioluminescence happen within fungi? I don't know, man. <laughs> well, I, I, will, I, I will. I have a pet. I have a pet theory, but uh. I will quote David Attenborough. Okay. We simply don't know. <laughs> such, such a good impersonation. <laughs> As we find in many of our episodes, no one knows for sure why this happens. Organisms do it for various reasons. Uh, it probably started out as a byproduct of just detoxifying processes that happen in cells. So I didn't know about this, but. Some antioxidants, as they break down, they do give off light. So as these traits evolved in different organisms, it's possible they gain additional functions. So fireflies, we know they use their light for communication, for mating. And then in marine environments, especially deep water, the organisms are using their luminescence for different reasons. But we're just not sure why mushrooms do it. And for a long time, it was just written off as a beautiful byproduct with no function. Mm -hmm. Just like, oh, it's just stuff breaking down. But as you were just mentioning, some species only glow above ground and some species only do it at night when they're, that green blue light is obvious to other organisms. So if the glowing was simply an accident, then wouldn't they just glow all the time, you know, around the clock? 
uh, there must be some reason that specific species only glow at night. There must be some advantage to that. So do you know what the, the running theories are? I'm familiar with a couple, but I know one is to help spore dispersal. Right, and I have a, a great study mm -hmm. that I'm going to talk about. So this is actually a pretty recent study from 2015. Researchers were using a fungus that grows in Brazil, flor de coco, which really just means coconut flower. Mm -hmm. It's Neonothopanus gardneri. And this is one of the biggest and brightest of the bioluminescent mushrooms. It's usually found attached to leaves at the base of young palm trees and coconut forests. All right. So what these researchers did is they created plastic mushrooms, acrylic mushrooms, and they covered them with glue. And then they put them out in the forest. And some of them, they put into them green LED lights that were emitting light at the same wavelength as the coconut flower mushrooms would normally do. Yeah. So they called them traps, and there were dark traps without light, and then there were light traps. And then they gathered data on what insects were attracted, which ones were repelled, and which ones didn't care about the light. And they did find that the light did attract a whole bunch of different kinds of insects. There were staphylinid beetles, flies, wasps, true bugs, and even ants. And these researchers found that the glow is under the control of a temperature compensated circadian clock. And their research does suggest that this level of control probably helps the mushrooms save energy by turning on their light only when it's easy to see. Uh, and one of the researchers actually said, regulation implies an adaptive function for this bioluminescence. So it is attracting the insects. They can't be sure that those insects are spreading spores but it would make sense that that's what's going on. But obviously they're gonna be doing more research into it. So I think it's important to include location and habitat into this because especially where wind dispersal is gonna be limited, like in yeah. a closed canopy. Let, let me jump yeah, in here. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So it actually said in the paper that if insects are gonna be attracted and help in spore dispersal, it would make sense that this would happen in this type of forest where the study took place, where the forest canopy greatly reduces wind flow, especially on the forest floor. So I think it would make sense to say that depending on where you're looking at bioluminescent fungi, there may be a different reason behind it. Yeah, and I want to mention that it is a fact that both luminous and non-luminous mushrooms can each produce millions of spores per night that are easily wind dispersed, so the significance of a supplemental insect dispersal is unknown. Like, how significant is that going to be when you're right. releasing millions of spores? <laughs> so, as we said before, we really don't know yeah, so why they're glowing. If I had to guess, I would possibly guarantee that for some species, insect dispersal is probably really important. But I don't think across the board it's going to be the answer anymore. Anyway. Oh, yeah. I don't yeah. think we could say all bioluminescent fungi right, right. do it to disperse spores. Yeah, I think it's going to be, there's going to be a selective advantage only where you are you don't have a mechanism for wind dispersal or you're in an area where wind dispersal is just not a very strong mechanism. Yeah, and I just want to be clear to the audience that th these researchers were not implying that this is the reason. Right. I, because as we said before, there are some bioluminescent fungi that are only emitting light under the soil. Mm -hmm. Just the mycelium are doing it. 
So that is not going to help with sport dispersal, obviously. That was another thing I wanted to bring up is that I've already said twice now, and I tried to be very clear to say it, that it's rare for just the mushroom to be the part that's glowing. And even when it is the mushroom, very often it's just a part of the mushroom. Yeah. So everything's complicated. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So do you want to talk about how they glow, the chemical reaction? Yeah, I think that's a great idea because I do want to talk about another hypothesis for why they glow. So, And I think it's important to get into the physiology of bioluminescence before I get into this next theory of why mushrooms glow in the first place. Okay. So let's just go through some of the basic aspects. And when I mean basic, (laughs) I mean that I'm going to skip any fancy language like oxidation and reduction. Good. Because... I, it's going to be a waste of time to bring it up, but for anyone who wants the reminder, just remember back to the phrase you might have learned in high school, Leo the lion says ger. Leo is an acronym for lose electron oxidation, and ger is an acronym for gain electron reduction. And now everyone else, forget I said that, and, uh, <laughs> and, and I'll get into that. First of all, luminescence seems to be a two-step process. Okay. So first a light-emitting substance called luciferin gains an electron, there we go, from an enzyme called NADPH, uh, meaning that NADPH is a limiting factor for this first stage. I thought you said this was going to be simple. I know. And because luciferin gained an electron, it's in an excited state and wants to release that electron to get back down to its more stable energy level. I don't know how to describe this easily. So during the second stage, luciferin passes off that electron to an enzyme called luciferase, and through that chemical event, releases energy in the form of bluish green light. And I like to think of luciferin being like a person who was handed a really heavy weight and is really struggling to hold it up. So like they're putting a lot of effort in to hold it up. And then when it's finally able to hand off that weight to someone else, it lets out a sigh of relief in the form of light. So it's like, <laughs> oh, that's a good way to describe it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, how is it possible to describe <laughs> chemistry in an easy way? I don't know. But, right. but but I just wanted to, I wanted to reintroduce those terms. Luciferin, which is the thing that gains and then loses the electron and releases light. Yep. And then luciferase which is the thing that it gives its electron to so let me try another explanation of it round two round two (laughs) fight (laughs) (laughs) so a molecule called luciferin reacts with oxygen energy atp and an enzyme called luciferase and luciferase is speeding up the whole process the energy produced by this reaction excites electrons in the luciferin molecule They're receiving more energy than normal, and when the electrons return to their normal state, let out that sigh, the excess energy is released as light. All right, excites electrons. Uh, It gains an electron, buddy. That's what happens. It raises that energy, or it raises an electron to a higher energy level that's not stable, and it it wants to get rid of it. It's excited. Yeah, it's it's not that its current electrons get excited, all right? It gains an electron, and that, 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 that... gets things going. I'm right? trying to communicate science here. <laughs> all right. And I'm trying to ruin that for you. <laughs> and I'm so glad that you said oxygen is present because I, I meant to bring that up. Oxygen is a super important part of this process. process. Yeah. yeah. Now, did you find 
any reference to this reaction being present in all bioluminescent organisms? Because what I was looking at seemed to indicate that this is the reaction that takes place in fireflies as well as fungi as well as marine organisms. Right. And when you look into research with fireflies, I believe they use the term luciferin and luciferase as well, yeah. which makes me think that that must be a category of enzyme okay, or a category of molecule anyway, mm -hmm. um, rather than the specific chemicals that are used in mushrooms. And that's just my guess. And I think that's why this process in mushrooms is somewhat mysterious because we have like the general outline, but I don't know if we perfectly know the actual chemical structures of everything that's happening. Okay. All right. Anything else? Yeah. Uh, so one thing I did want to mention is, is that there are some environmental factors that affect the growth and luminescence of fungi. Um, did you get into this at all? You kind of touched on it a little bit with temperature. From what I read, it seems like temperature and soil pH seem to be important while, while light level didn't seem to be important across the board anyway. It's, it is true for some species, but there's actually a good number of species that there is no daytime, nighttime fluctuation. Is that they're glowing 24 hours a day, seven right. days a week. Yeah, some species. But you're not going to notice it in the daytime. Right. You know? <laughs> you're, uh, you're only going to notice it at night. So it's maybe it seems like it's only glowing at night, but it's glowing during the day yeah. too. That yeah. would be awesome though if it was bright enough to see it in the day. <laughs> yeah, just like how I imagine a a glow-in-the-dark frisbee is glowing during the day, but right. you're not gonna it's so it. bright, you're yeah. not going to see it. Yeah. But what you just said, that connects to one of the other ideas about the evolutionary benefit to producing this glow. Some of these fungi that just have mycelium that are glowing, it may be to discourage fungivores underground. Obviously, mm -hmm. if they're underground, they're probably going to be avoiding light. So if they're tunneling and all of a sudden they come upon something that's glowing, they're going to go the other way. Yeah. So that could possibly be an advantage, intentional or not, mm -hmm. to having bioluminescence underground. Yeah. And that would make sense that they would glow all the time. Mm -hmm. So just to kind of summarize the running theories, we have the idea that Maybe some of these fungi glow to help spread spores by attracting insects. Um, some of them, especially the ones where the mycelium is glowing, they're doing that to discourage critters from nibbling on them. There's also the idea that it's just a byproduct of natural processes. But overall, we don't know. But, but I do love how when it's a mushroom glowing, they're trying to attract fungivores. But if it's the mycelium, maybe they would want to... <laughs> detract, you know, from, from the uh, fungivores um, to trying to eat them. Right. <laughs> it's kind of funny. They're doing the same thing potentially Having for two different... Reaction, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, I want to scare them away. I'll glow. I want to bring them in. I'll I glow. think I'll glow. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, personally, uh, because I'm swayed by the papers I read, I kind of like one of the alternative hypotheses that I read. Oh, you have another one? Yeah, yeah. Um, that fungal bioluminescence has selective advantages because it provides antioxidant protection from the deleterious effects of reactive oxygen species. Okay. And you're always going to get this during respiration. You produce uh, oxygen um, or reactive oxygen during uh, respiration. And as we know from plants, it's not good to have oxygen in your leaf. We talk about this a lot. Yeah. And the thing is, it's, it's, it's almost like oxygen is really important to life and a lot of the stuff we talk about. And, and one point that I want to bring up is because I think it's so interesting. And I think it's something that maybe a lot of people don't think about is that if let's say all the oxygen producing species 
suddenly disappeared from the planet, our oxygen levels in our atmosphere would not stay the same. It would slowly decline over time and then eventually completely disappear. And this is why th some astronomers look for oxygen signatures coming from exoplanets, because if you find oxygen in the universe, it's not there on accident, or it's not there because it's just something that happens geologically. It's there because there's life creating it. There's an because, organism. Because oxygen's so reactive, it's too busy rusting things, or it's too busy, <laughs> you know, just combining with other molecules. It's not going to stay oxygen. It's not going to stay O2 for very long. Um, so I think that that's an important thing to bring up is that it's highly reactive. So living things have to deal with it. It's like we like living things like oxygen, but they also don't like oxygen at the same time. And if you have something in the mushroom binding up the oxygen, that could be a good thing. And that's what happens during the process. That's a perfectly acceptable reason for bioluminescence, you're saying? I think so. Yeah, sure. I think it could just be, it may not have an ecological purpose. It may just be trying to avoid oxidative stress. Yeah. Wouldn't that be an ecological purpose though? It's it's more for itself though. It's not like it's not trying to draw in it's not trying to interact with other species and okay. its environment is what I'm trying to say. Gotcha. I think it's kinda it kinda makes a strong case because we were saying how limited the theory of spore dispersal is. Right. That you know, if it's used for something, you want it to be as universalizable as possible. So I think uh, this one is I don't know, like I kind of like it, even if it's just a slight advantage, because obviously the vast majority of mushrooms don't worry about this, or at least they worry about it and they deal with it in different ways. But if you have a bioluminescent fungi and it has the slight advantage by lighting up and, and kind of trapping up those oxygen molecules, then I don't know, maybe that would be some type of advantage, I guess. I think it'd be a lot more common though. You know? Yeah, right. Yeah. That's And that's another thing. That's why That's why this paper that I was reading was not like, this is the answer. You know, and of course, you're never going to have a paper say that. Even right. if it was the answer for some species, I'm sure there's more important influences than getting rid of those reactive oxygen species. You yeah. know? And I think we can pretty safely say again that it's probably not one reason right, that yeah. all of these mushrooms are bioluminescing. There's, there's usually more than one influence on, yeah. on why something is the way it is. Yeah. All, right. all right. Do you have anything else? I just have two more short things. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to give people an idea of where and how to look for foxfire. Oh, because that's, that's after a great idea. Yeah, after listening to this episode, you probably want to go find it. Hike without headlamps. Well, <laughs> that's I a should, big one. I'll say bring your headlamp with you, but try not to turn it on. Right. See, because, you know, it's crazy when you're walking in a forest at night. Very often you have paths that are just, you know, from trampled feet and all that. It's almost like they glow up at night yeah. when you don't use a headlamp. And it's surprisingly easy to see at night, even when there's no moon. No, I, it's, was, I was just going to yeah. say, I know there's probably some listeners out there saying, hike at night without a light? What, what are you, crazy? But folks, trust us. If you give your eyes the chance to adjust, you will be seriously surprised at how well you can see at night. But even if you, someone in your group, or even if you just turn on your headlamp or your flashlight, that is going to diminish the night vision that you have built up. And it'll take a little while again for your eyes to adjust. I found a, a website that advised for seeing foxfire. The best way to see it is in old, moist oak woods where plenty of big dead limbs and old stumps litter the ground. It can be seen in the spring as the forest floor warms, but the light is so dim usually that many people never notice it. So to see it, Preferably pick a night with no moon, keep away from areas with artificial lights, and do not use a flashlight. Your eyes have to be well adjusted to the dark. Uh, they said, think of foxfire as Goldilocks. 
Not too hot, not too cold, not too wet, not too dry. When conditions are just right and in the right spot with your eyes adjusted to the dark, the forest around you will glow and it's magical. <laughs> <laughs> I guess apparently, especially if you're in Oregon with that, uh, yeah. <laughs> however many kilometer, square kilometer uh, species. And the, the one thing I wanted to end with by the way, I'm sorry, before we move on, I just want to say, I don't think all of Oregon's glowing. <laughs> I think it would be pretty incredible if you dug in, you know, if you dug into the soil a little bit and saw some type of glowing with the mycelium, but um, I don't think it's as fantastical as I'm making it out to see. <laughs> all right, so what I did want to end with is just about bioluminescence in general and um, how it's led to some major breakthroughs in research. So did you know that in, in 2008, the Nobel Prize in chemistry went to a team that was looking at bioluminescence. Oh, no. Yeah. They isolated a protein from jellyfish, a bioluminescent protein, and they called it GFP, green fluorescent protein. Are you talking about people doing chemical markers? Yes. Yeah, that's such an important discovery. Yeah, so yeah. it's since been used as a huge research tool, and it's led to the development of several other fluorescent proteins. So as you mentioned, GFP, it's used for tagging and tracking proteins. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, so they can put this into a protein and then see what this protein does in different organisms. This is, yeah. for research, this was huge. And this is because of bioluminescence. Yeah, so, that's so important yeah. medically and otherwise, just to try to figure out what's happening at a chemical scale, yeah. which uh, is probably one of the most important scales in a lot of ways, especially when we get into genetics and stuff like that. So thank you, bioluminescence. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Before we do our outro, I just want to talk about a couple things. Number one, if you're a regular listener, in previous episodes, you heard us talk about the Allegheny Nature Pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. So we're currently editing the walk we did. For those that haven't listened to those episodes, the Allegheny Nature Pilgrimage, it's this event that occurs in early June uh, in the southern tier of New York State where people spend the whole weekend going on nature hikes and nature programs. There's talks. It's just a great event, and the atmosphere is, I mean, I don't know about you, but to me, there's just this sense of camaraderie. Everybody's there kind of for the same reason. I imagine it's it's what people feel like when they're at a large sporting event. Oh, yeah. That is something I don't understand. But <laughs> uh, at the Allegheny Nature Pilgrimage for nature lovers, it's just wonderful. And the reason I'm saying this now is because reservations are going to start opening for cabins at the end of August. <laughs> and when did we reserve ours? When was that? <laughs> that was like a month before. That was like <laughs> yeah, May. That, yeah, and that we, was it. We did not have a nice cabin. <laughs> yeah, but... I'm hoping that we'll do a walk there again next year in 2019. Uh, I was happy with how it went, weren't you? Yeah, and in fact, maybe even better than it actually went was uh, the article that was written about it. Because <laughs> the article uh, by Rick Miller, really generous article, great. I, I was so thankful for that. Uh, he said that more than 120 people were there. <laughs> I, I mean, I hope so. I don't remember there being that many, but no. like, I'm also, so, I'm not one of those biologists that can look at a flock of birds flying overhead and be like, oh, you know, oh, that's a hundred, oh, that's a thousand birds. So maybe I'm just bad at, at number estimating, but um, I didn't think it was over a hundred, no. uh, but maybe closer to 60, but I didn't think over a hundred anyway. So, <laughs> no. but it was a nice, it was a huge crowd. It was a good crowd. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. But when we started the hike, we had the crowd gathered in front of us. And I said, oh, how many people are listeners for the field guides? Crickets. Not a single person <laughs> raised their hand. And I wish we would have. So we had a friend of the podcast, Rich, 
um, recording that for us. He wasn't recording that part of it. Yeah. And I'm, I wish we had that moment captured for all time because um, that was so good. It was perfect. Yeah, it was really great. Yeah. All right, so folks, check out Allegheny Nature Pilgrimage. You can type it in any search engine. Definitely come next year. Come on our hike. Uh, it's a, such a great time. And then I also wanted to mention that we have another bonus episode that's going to be coming out at some point in the future. I actually just got back from Ohio where I was lucky enough to interview Gordon Maupin, who was who's a naturalist and he was the former host of the podcast Wild Ideas, mm-hmm. which... Well, the podcast Wild Ideas, the, pod- the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that podcast was, at least for me, one of the inspirations for starting this one when when Gordon retired and the other hosts retired I felt this void so that was part of the inspiration for starting this one and Gordon was incredibly gracious when I emailed him saying that I was going to be in Ohio and would he be willing to sit down for an interview he got right back to me I was just so impressed and I'm actually thinking and and I think a lot of our listeners would appreciate this is that if it wasn't for Gordon Gary and Joanne in defense of plants might also not exist. Yeah, uh, and, and certainly we probably wouldn't either. That's another so. podcast by yeah. our friend Matt. Yeah. yeah. So Steve and I had been talking about how it would be fun to do some bonus episodes where we sit down with people in natural history or biology and, and just talk to them and hear their stories, what they have to say. So uh, we kind of did that with Dave Junkin during our Christmas bird count episode. And that's one of my favorite ones. Like that's yeah. that's definitely what got us on this uh, this idea of talking to people about just their cool experience yeah, yeah yeah so keep an eye out for that that episode will be coming out i'm thinking sometime probably in august sounds good all right we hope you enjoyed the episode first and foremost we'd like to thank our growing list of patreon supporters and it is growing it is it was there was a dip and then it started to grow <laughs> uh, so thank you susan and nick yeah they were, those are our two most recent ones yeah i should say Susie and nick but she said susan on our thing so i'll <laughs> go with that all right so uh so we're thankful for every single patron But at the end of every show, we give a special thanks to our top patrons. So thank you, Rob. We named the dog Indy. And especially Ken, Diane, Morgan, Alyssa, Mountain Misery Farms, Elizabeth, and Daniel. Thank you guys so much. We also want to thank our most recent iTunes reviewers. Those are the people that have left written reviews for us on iTunes. So we have Banana Hammock, lots of K. (laughs) We also have Bulldog15, Drudamil, Roger That, Julia, <laughs> a Ernest and then Arcoptrix. And they're from the Pacific Northwest. So keep those reviews coming, guys. It really helps us get the word out to more people. And I know we already mentioned Rick Miller, but if you guys know of any other shout outs that we haven't found ourselves, please let us know so we can give them a shout out on the podcast. Yeah, please do. Or if you have any suggestions, questions, comments, you can always email us at thefieldguides at gmail.com. Oh, no, and I just realized we never did our Ask Us Anything bonus episode. It just dawned on me right now. (laughs) There's a couple of things we promised that we never had. (laughs) I mean, we're really close to 100 reviews. We are, 93. We said we would do it at 25, and we're so close to 100. But we'll do it soon, we promise. Yeah, Yeah, we'll at least do it before the fall semester starts. Can we promise that? Can we try to promise that? Oh, yeah, we could do it this summer. Okay, okay. So don't forget to visit us on Instagram at Field Guides Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Field Guides Pod. Like and follow us on Facebook. And visit our website at thefieldguidespodcast.com. And if you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, you can do so on patreon.com forward slash thefieldguides. But if you're like Steve and you can't afford to financially support a podcast right oh, now, <laughs> there are other ways you can help out. 
You could share our episode with friends or rate us and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Folks, that really does help get the word out. It allows our podcast to show up in other people's feeds and suggestions from iTunes and other podcatchers. So thanks for listening, folks, and we'll see you next month. And happy belated 4th of July. Oh, and I forgot to mention, when I was doing the uh, the interview with Gordon, he asked if we would start ending our episodes the way they used to end their episodes. Oh, yeah. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. So Gary used to always say, hey, parents, make sure you get your kids outside. Let them get muddy and get dirty. Horrible Gary impersonation. <laughs> <laughs> but I like it. Maybe we'll do that for Let me now. try again. Yeah. All right, parents, get your kids outside. Let them flip over rocks, get muddy, and get dirty. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let's try that one out. Okay. <laughs>